Hello and welcome to Digital Mindfulness. This is episode number 48. Today my guest is the futurist, author and speaker, Gerd Leonhardt. Gert, who has previously lived in Silicon Valley, speaks to global audiences on the impacts of transformational change and digital disruption. With a background in digital music, Gert is a futurist with an audience of more than 1.5 million people around the world and focuses on the future of technology and humanity. He's particularly focused on a world where tech progress is fast-paced and also how will we define what humanity is and what it's not what will be done by humans and what will be done by technology. This is a fascinating discussion with one of the leading lights in technology and humanity, which I hope you enjoy as much as I did. So, um, so Gert, welcome to Digital Mindfulness and thank you so much for giving us some of your time this morning to, to talk about what you've been working on and your theories and your book. So welcome to the show. Yes, thanks for having me. So, Gert, can you give us an introduction to yourself and tell us why your work is so important? Well, I'm, uh, my background is I used to be a musician and producer, and then I went on as an internet entrepreneur in digital music in the 90s in San Francisco. Uh, I'm from Germany, originally live in Switzerland. Uh, I became a futurist in 2004 when I published my first book, The Future of Music, which was about the music business, and then after that I gradually grew into other territories. And... Uh, over the last five years, the topic of how technology is changing our lives and humanity itself has become very much a forefront of my work, uh, both with clients as well as my keynote speeches and videos. So I'm also a filmmaker. Uh, I made a film on technology versus humanity. It's on YouTube. Uh, so if you're looking at that stuff, you can just look for the hashtag on Twitter, tech versus human, tech vs human. And you'll find all my stuff there. But basically, technology versus humanity is a book that's... Um, not negative on technology. It's, uh, my view is that technology is fantastic and we can have a very bright future uh, inventing our way out of lots of global problems like uh, food, water, energy, uh, diseases. Right? Uh, so I'm very positive on technology. At the same time, the bottom line of the book says we should embrace technology to make it uh, basically help our human flourishing, right? But we should not become technology. Uh, and I think a lot of people who are proponents of technology, especially Silicon Valley type technologists, right, are proposing, like Ray Kurzweil, that we should ourselves become technology. And I think that's a very bad idea. So the book is about finding the path between uh, rejecting technology, which is not really an option, right, uh, or saying that we're going to become technology, which I think is an aberration. Uh, and, and that's basically the purpose of the book is to set forth, you know, a path of digital ethics, of uh, holistic thinking about technology, about discovering the purpose of technology. Mm. So um, just to go back to you very quickly, how did you make that, maybe it's not even a jump, but how did you make that move from music and art all the way over to, you know, thinking and really deeply about how we use technology? Well, I was a student of uh, philosophy and, and uh, theology when I was a kid, you know, 
Uh, I have to say I'm not at all religious. That was just a, a sort of a detour, right? And then I studied music. So I come from the humanities. Huh? And then in the mid-90s, I was lucky enough to be sucked into the first wave of internet companies dealing with online music. And that's how I got into te uh, technology and e-commerce and, and the internet, right? And so I was an entrepreneur. I started about a dozen companies and mostly in media. Uh, and so I really understand humanity issues, I think, uh, and cultural issues, political issues, but uh, also I really understand how technologists think. I lived in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, uh, for, for 15 years, right? So I'm very familiar with the mindset. And, and this is what worries me greatly, is that we are uh, essentially allowing companies in Silicon Valley and maybe in China uh, to become like mission control for humanity, right? Uh, in other words, whatever they invent is what we're going to do. Uh, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a bad idea because it's primarily an engine of economics, right? uh, of, of growth and profits. And uh, just like we have been seeing the development of Facebook, which has become a, a pleasure trap in a way, right? Um, it's, it has been, a, it's completely different than when it started, right? Now all of us are stuck in Facebook. There's not much we can do about not using it. But it's definitely not fulfilling its original purpose, which is to be for us, right? Now it's for itself. Right. So you're basically saying that, you know, that initially when the tech was created, it was created to improve aspects of humanity. But now you're saying it's being driven by market forces, which is having an effect on us. Well, the initial idea of the internet was, of course, to make uh, knowledge available to uh, create a flat hierarchy of access and you know all positive things, which it still does, of course, in many ways. But now the internet has become a bigger factor, and and the data companies have become a bigger factor in life than oil or gas. Right? So, I mean, the the world's economy is now a data economy, right? It's not an oil economy anymore, and, and as oil is evaporating as as a, a big business factor in the next ten, fifteen years. Uh, data and intelligence and machines and algorithms, you know, we're entering the, the, next, the next machine age, basically, right? Uh, and so that really threatens many things. There's many good things about that. For example, it becoming more efficient, right, uh, and easy. But it's the idea of that being a giant democratization vehicle has failed, um, because basically it's a huge business now, right? And, you know, Facebook and Google now earn... 92% of the world's advertising revenues on the internet. It's, uh, and, and we're talking about, you know, we're talking about trillions. I mean, not trillions, but hundreds of billions. Right? But we're talking about serious money here, right? Yes, extraordinary. And I'm interested, why, why do you think then that, um, I mean, we're talking about these companies, why do you think they have become so huge? And I'm not talking in terms of market size, I'm talking about why do you think they've become so ubiquitous in human life? Like, why do you think we as people are not thinking critically about the role of technology in our lives? Well, we, we tend to not be critical about anything un, un, unless something really painful happens, right? I mean, we got, we got out of nuclear energy in Switzerland after Fukushima, and now we're back in, right? Uh, it's basically human nature is uh, mostly complacent, convenient, a bit on the lazy side, you know, whatever works for us. Uh, and we tend to make those kind of deals that look great, right? And then we realize that, that we are the content of these places, right? And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that we need a balance, right? And right now the balance is 99% on the side of the provider and the platform. Uh, 
and that's only a marginal problem really with Google and Facebook. It's big enough, but it's not, the average person will not really understand this argument very well uh, because it's, it's a great platform and it's free, right? Uh, but if you take this kernel of dissatisfaction, of surveillance, of de-skilling, uh, of, uh, of basically abdicating our authority, if you take this, this kernel and you blow it up exponentially as technology tends to be exponential, right? In 10 years, we're going to be roughly 32 times as big, you know, exponentially uh, as big. And, and, and these issues will become absolutely huge. For example, we will not be able to work without being wired and plugged in and maybe even augmented. Uh, we will not be able to function without a, a steady internet connection, possibly even directly to the brain, as Ray Kurzweil says, a, a second neurocortex, neuro right? And we're talking about a development that takes technology from the outside to the inside of us. And that changes the very definition of who we are, not just by genetic engineering, but by utter dependency and basically becoming totally useless without technology. Goodness. I mean, we were talking in the pre-interview, you and I, about this coming potential coming situation of technological unemployment and would you say then that this everything that you've just described now will lead to some form of unemployment amongst information workers well I, i'm not really on the pessimistic or dystopian side i think what is happening is that technology will be able to do away with lots of work that we don't really want to do uh, that we do just because it pays you know like uh, financial analysis of simple transactions, collecting facts and collating things or driving a truck in the U.S. You know, those are jobs that people need, but do they want them? Uh, I think technology will do away with those jobs, and that's a certainty. Uh, unlike the industrial area, we will not have new jobs for all those like cashiers, fast food joints, truck drivers, uh, low-level financial uh, analysis, uh, wealth management, uh, banking on the low level. Uh, they will all go away, as the Oxford report said, maybe as much as 50%. Um, I think, however, that is good news because we're going to go in a, into a society that is less based on deriving value from work, right? because we can't work as much as we are now. And we're eventually going to have abundant services that are very cheap because technology makes it cheap. Uh, technology has made music cheap and, and movies cheap and transportation is now cheaper. Very soon is going to be energy and financial services. So that's a good outlook. We have to ask the question sooner or later, what do we do if work does not define our lives anymore? And that's a long, that's a sort of what I call a post-capitalism question, right? Really. Um, <clears throat> just uh, if you can give us a little bit of a sneak peek, what do you think then happens in this post-capitalist society? How do we derive value from our lives? Well, in the ideal case, you know, society will become so efficient and so much powered by technology that basic things that we need are very cheap, like media, transport, information, housing, medical. For example, right now, the medical costs are exploding uh, and being far out of reach for many people, unfortunately. Uh, and that's going to change once technology is coming in and making it more efficient and not taking pills, but using technology to solve the problem. But then there's an ethical question about, you know, uh, genome editing, of course. Right? But having said that, so ultimately that our society will become 
much more capable of providing things for much lower money, which will eventually lead to sort of a guaranteed basic income of a sort. For example, the idea of providing everything we need to live at, by the government, uh, which we voted on here in Switzerland in June. Of course, it didn't pass, you know. But um, eventually, the nature of the stock market will change because we will no longer have consumption in the middle of uh, as an engine. Right? We will we will have uh, a more holistic view of, of uh, sustainability and renewability and the triple bottom line. You know, people, planet, profit. Um, that's that's kind of the inevitable future because technology makes that possible. That is the positive view. Uh, that if we are able to use technology but not be used by it, right? Uh, and I think we can do that, that it's not too late, but we're going to need collective effort, you know, we're going to need a, an ethics council, uh, we're going to need uh, leadership, we're going to need politics uh, to take a look at these issues and decide which ones to regulate, right? As I was saying earlier, all companies were very heavily regulated, probably not enough, <laughs> but, but you know, data companies are pretty much unregulated, and that and think about that. What that would do with artificial intelligence? You know, when a machine has an IQ of fifty thousand. So, would you, that's really interesting. So, then, will you do you think then that we do need even now new institutions, new kind of governance um, institutions, etc. Well, I would say pretty much any politician that does not think about how technology is going to change fundamentally who we are is pretty much unfit for office because this is the number one issue, right? The number one issue right after nuclear power, so nuclear uh, warfare and terrorism, right? Uh, it goes with this is, is the question of technology is changing all of these things rapidly and we're not even aware of uh, how, it cha- how it's changing society, how, how it's creating good things and bad things, but how essentially technology could very well in 10 years uh, be the dominant force in our lives, and, and uh, well, it already is in many ways. <laughs> and then, and then we, we need regulation, social contracts, we need agreements, we need ethics. I mean, imagine a world run by technology without ethics, right? That would be the end of it uh, sooner or later. That would be the dystopian part, right? Uh, and and uh, there's many reasons why that's not a good idea. So now I really want to move on and talk a little bit more about your book that's coming out and just your overall perspective on it. Do you really think that digitized life, both now and in the future, is going to be characterized by a conflict between humanity and technology? Well, um, my book, Technology versus Humanity, is actually it's on pre-order status right now. It's coming out September 8th. Uh, and we have a, a, a pre-release party in London, by the way. <laughs> but but uh, so the, the book is about this very issue: is that we uh, humans always invent technology, right? Uh, and that's part of you know inventing tools is who we are as humans. We're not going to go backwards and put the tools away, and we're not going to limit the invention of the tools. But as uh, um, um, William Gibson said that technology is morally neutral until we apply it. Right? So it is really about the application and the use of these technologies where we need the social contract and the limitations. It's not about the inventing of it, right? But imagine, uh, imagine for a minute the, uh, the idea of saying that a computer will have the capacity of the human brain, like one computer can 
uh, can basically simulate 150 mil trillion neurons that we have. That's going to be the case roughly 2025. Uh, currently, that's not the case, even though people think it may be already. And then 2050, we'll have one computer will have the capacity of the entire human number of brains, like, you know, 9 billion. And, and so think about what that would do in terms of the challenge when we have machines that have an IQ of a 1 million, right, an IQ then uh, we're going to need to figure out how we harness this power, right? Not how we deny it. And so my, my point is in the book that I'm making, let's be aware of the externalities of the unintended consequence of the ethical challenges because uh, a, a famous philosopher once said, technology is not what we seek, but how we seek. Right? So technology is not the purpose of life. Right? Technology is a tool. And now it's becoming quickly, uh, in many ways, technology becomes the purpose, right? I mean, you can, it's, it's only early days for this, but uh, that would be a very bad confusion because it would lead us to become machines uh, in the case of genetic engineering, cyborgs, transhumanism, singularity, right? Um, and to my view, that's a very, very bad idea because the, the merging of technology and humanity in the biological or, or physical sense, right, will render us useless as humans because we will lose everything that we stand for that is not an algorithm, which happens to be 98% of what we are, you know, compassion, feelings, emotion, intuition, creativity, you know. So we would be swapping those things against having a larger brain, for example. Very bad idea. Would you say then that then because we're kind of infatuated with tech development at the minute, do you, would you say then that there's also, we're also kind of not developing as well these other capacities that you were just talking about, our capacity for creativity, our capacity for empathy, etc.? Well, one of the key points in the book is where I'm saying we need to spend as much money on, and time on what I call the Android rhythms, which are the human rhythms, right, the human qualities, than we spend on technology. Uh, right now, we're spending all resources on technology and inventing stuff. We're not spending a lot of resources on ethics and, and creativity and human development, right? Uh, in fact, you know, a lot of technology companies are proposing that it would be much better if we were also technology because it would be more seamless, right? And that is a ludicrous proposition, right? It's like, uh, I mean, in my view, that's like completely the, the wrong way around. So, so to spend, I mean, in the future, uh, in less than 20 years, most of us will not have any work to do unless it's going to be human work, you know, like work that only humans can do. You know, negotiation, therapy, uh, discussions, creativity, design, you know, that is human work and, and that's non-routine work, basically, right? Uh, and unless we're very good at that, we won't have a job. Well, our kids will need to be humanists that understand technology. Humanists that understand technology. That's great. That's great. Well, and, well you could be a great humanist, like a painter or an artist. If you're lucky, then you, uh, you'll also have a job. Uh, but it's much safer if you are really, if you're, uh, if you're very well educated in the humanities and you also know how to program or understand technology, right? That would be the, the safest combination. Mm, that's great. So, so if, you're then, if you're kind of listening to this now 
and some people are wondering, okay, then that's brilliant. How do I train my empathy? How do I train my creativity, this humanist side of me? What would you say to them? Well, I think that goes back to um, a lot of our history. I mean, it's, it's quite clear that a lot of major business leaders went to art school, right? Uh, and especially in the UK. Uh, and what we need to train is the particularly human part of our existence um, that is uh, shoved aside in many institutions, for example, creativity, uh, lateral thinking, uh, skills of understanding, perception, pattern recognition, uh, and, and because, you know, we're moving beyond the knowledge economy. A lot of people think that knowing a lot of stuff is a great protection, right? Well, knowing lots of stuff is a great thing, and I certainly try to do that, right? But it's not about knowing stuff, and Asimov said in the end, you know, it's not about being a speed reader, but being a speed understander, right? And that was in the 60s. So, it's understanding is completely different than knowing, right? So, knowing X, Y, Z and stuff, but really understanding requires a holistic approach as uh, Daniel Kahneman, the world-famous uh, psychotherapist, uh, said that uh, cognition is embodied. It's not in the brain, right? It's in the body. I mean, it's everywhere. It's not just in my neurons, right? Uh, and so we have to develop that part, which means developing our body abilities, taking care of our body, looking at our food, looking at the holistic approach of life. And I think that's what it comes down to in the end, because otherwise we tend to say that the more processing power our brain has, the more valuable we are, right? Which is, which is a ridiculous assumption, because we can't possibly win. No. And you're right, it's, it's, it's an unfair comparison, isn't it, to say that that humans kind of need to know a lot of stuff and and you know if we can replace that human that human's capacity to know a lot of things with a computer then then that's fine but actually you're right it's not a fair comparison and definitely not the way that society is heading well it's let's say that let's put it this way i think ultimately the the relationship of man and machine is completely intertwined and we are converging right with technology and so what we need to do is to say how can we use technology to sit on top of it and to use it as a tool and not give it so much space not to what's called uh, anthropomorphize technology not to give it human qualities right? and for example tinder is a great example of how you give technology a human quality right so for a lot of guys now in cities younger guys especially dating is just a process of swiping through a bunch of pictures right uh, and it's, that, that's kind of a shortcut to what it used to be. And I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that uh, maybe that's not all there is to dating, right? Uh, and so we tend to use that as a substitute. And, and eventually, maybe in five years, we will only date a person that has compatible DNA with us, right? Uh, or, I mean, that's when it gets to be really wacko, right? Uh, and so we need to find those borders, uh, and we need to we need to have room uh, uh, places that don't have technology. I like to say offline is the new luxury, right? Uh, because you know uh, the human brain isn't wired for constant connectivity. Uh, it needs contemplation. It needs boredom. It needs uh, isolation, right? It needs space, right? It, and it, it needs to sleep, right? <laughs> 
So those are issues that we, we must look at. Otherwise, I think we, we will find what are called digital obesity, uh, that we get bloated with all that stuff, right? And we just don't know anything anymore. We get, and like you say, kind of get bloated with um, information that's meaningless, you know, it just doesn't mean anything. All of this, all of this clickbait, all of this stuff, these passwords that we have to remember. Well, it has um, a sense of meaning. You know, it, it, it is just not uh, contextual, right? So it, it has its meaning, but it's, it's lacking context and relevance. Uh, and it's lacking humanness in general, right? Because humanness is a complex combination of things, of factors that most algorithms will not understand for the foreseeable future. Uh, because, because they cut it down to the mere essence of zeros and ones, right? And I call that sometimes wormholing, which is like a, you know, the wormhole idea, you cut through time and space, and seconds you travel, you know, three trillion miles. And that's kind of what Facebook is doing, for example, right? It's creating a giant wormhole of information uh, without actually being human about it. So w would you also say that there's an argument for... Um, helping for basically cognitive load management so one of the things that we're talking you know you and I were talking about is yes it's good for people to have time off and to you know as there's been a massive discussion in the UK about this about digi digitally detoxing but would you also say that there's an argument for that basically one of the key skills in the in the future is going to be how we manage our cognitive load how we man how we're able to filter out what's important and what is not uh, well, absolutely. I mean, that is a huge challenge, and I think uh, media has failed to a large degree to uh, provide that because of the uh, the Darwinism of digital technology. Um, but yes, I mean, uh, the load management is a huge issue because basically there there's a limit to how much of that we can take. When you know we're going to have roughly 150 friends, and that's a, a biological rule. Most people have 15 good friends or 1.5 good friends, right? We're not going to have 15,000 because we Twitter or, or Facebook, right? That is not human capacity. We are not exponential, right? Technology is growing exponentially, which means that whatever we see today that looks like science fiction is becoming science fact, right? Uh, it's just, uh, but humans can't do that. We grow, uh, if, if we're lucky, we can learn linearly. We can always learn something, right? And so we should not try to make ourselves exponential. That would kill us. Right? Uh, and then this is why cognitive load management and, and this idea of saying, well, you know, allowing ourselves to be by ourselves, you know, being, being in the moment, not taking a photograph of everything we see uh, and not sharing everything we find and, and not constantly tapping into a huge uh, global flow of information, which is going to get even worse when you have augmented virtual reality. Uh, it will be very addictive, and eventually the brain-computer interface, right? And that is the vision of Silicon Valley, is to connect all of our brains to what I call the global brain. Right? And I think that will be the end of us as, as a uh, freestanding individual. Right? <laughs> because there's no way that we can take it, right? And, it, this, uh, and it's completely disembodied also, right? It does not consider anything that we actually need as an as organism. And that, that, that is a very detrimental view of the world, and it can only be thought of by people who uh, try to pretend not to have a body. And this, of course, then goes back to what you were saying 
that tech development needs ethics, you know, needs almost global ethics. Well, it needs, I mean, we have the same in nuclear energy is that we have the non-proliferation treaties, right, the NPTs. Uh, and if you, uh, I mean, you can, you can go against them and do your own thing, but you get punished. And, uh, you know, there is a mechanism for this. It's hard to work, but it is working, right? We, we haven't had a nuclear war for a while, <laughs> uh, you know, not ever since the first time. And so we'll need the same thing because these things that are happening right now, like artificial intelligence and genetic engineering and uh, geoengineering, which has changed the weather, and material sciences, those are vastly equally or more powerful than nuclear energy. Uh, they have potential of existential threat. And they, and they have potential of existential optimism, right? right? So I, I, can, I can solve cancer. That would be fantastic if we can do that. But then I can also build superhumans. Right? So who will decide... What is okay, and I mean the government needs to decide that, and a global body of people that I would call like a stewardship team, you know, whether that's going to be United Nations, I don't know, or if we don't do that, we're going to see an arms race in these exponential technologies, right? because they are the new, those are the new forces of technology, right? That is that is actually really really interesting. Almost like having, like you're saying, a United Nations for tech development or a World Trade Organization for. Well, um, first of all, I think to to make it more tangible, I think every technology company, every platform, from Alibaba to Tencent to Twitter, Facebook, and the, all the others, they need to take responsibility for what they are creating. Uh, this is exactly like the gun lobby in the U.S. saying that you know guns don't kill people; people kill people. Right? I mean, that is the worst excuse, the lamest excuse you can possibly think of, right? Uh, and if we do the same here, then we say, well, you know, our artificial intelligence didn't cause this problem. It, it was the human user who, right? And I think that's just total, that's just a crock, right, basically. It's, it's if you create these technologies that can do this, if you create technology for genetic engineering of humans, you are responsible for how it's being used. And you need to take that into account. And that's called the precautionary approach, which I talk about in my book, is that you are required to show that it will not have existential threat. So, so Gert, you were, say, you, know, you were saying that you're very much an optimist. So, how, what, I don't know, what kind of future can you see? How, can you, how do you see this marriage if you like, because I know that you don't think that there's going to be a conflict between tech development and humanity, but how do you see this marriage um, manifesting? Uh, on the exponential curve, we are at four, right? So we're very early in the curve. Uh, when you're early in the curve of exponential, then you double 0.01, you get 0.02. That's not very much, right? But now we're doubling from four to eight to 16 every, every 18 months, right? So we're the beginning of the curve. And whatever we decide now, has impact on the development of that curve. And so that's why I'm positive about this because we are at the point to where we are saying, okay, technology can do pretty much anything. I mean, that, that's our reality, right? Just ask the question, if technology can do what the answer is yes, right? Pretty much. Uh, it just takes a, a, a while to invent more stuff, right? <laughs> Look at the uh, you know autonomous cars and stuff. So 
my point is that technology can, I see a future where technology is creating an, an abundant world that is rid of all of the issues that we've been struggling with for tens of thousands of years, food, energy, environment, pollution, that is, you know, diseases that we can solve with technology that is possible. And what we need to do is we need to take the power of technology and harness it and be a good steward of that technology that we don't get the side effects to overwhelm the good things. So, for example, the government in the future will have to figure out how they allow genetic treatments of Alzheimer's and diabetes and, and cancer, if that's what your issue is, and disallow the use of genetic engineering to create superhumans. And how do you, how do, you do that, right? It's, it's not going to be easy, right? So, so I'm fully aware of the challenge, but if we don't do that, then it's very likely that is essentially a war between humans and post-humans, right? That, I, I think that is a dystopian scenario that I'm not finding that very, very realistic, but uh, we do need to look at those issues and address them now. Um, good. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty easy just Googling Gerd Leonhardt, so G-E-R-D, uh, like nerd with a G. Uh, Leonhardt, uh, and but my my website is futuristgerd.com, so futuristgerd.com. I have a, a very active YouTube channel with over 350 hours of video. Uh, it's gerdtube, g-e-r-d-tube.com. That's the shortcut. Uh, gerdtube.com, and my new book is Tech versus Human, Tech vs Human.com. Perfect. Well, Gert Leonhardt. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really, really appreciate it.